God in his supreme grace has revealed himself to us in three primary ways. First, through nature. We observe creation and the reasonable individual is forced to the conclusion that there is indeed a creator behind this creation. Paul asserts as much in his letter to the Romans, the first chapter, that there's enough revelation in nature for a reasonable person to conclude that he does indeed exist. Those who deny such revelation do so against nature. And Paul says that they willfully suppress the knowledge of the truth. But we have to admit that God's revelation in nature is limited. We can observe something of his intelligence and his incredible organizational ability. We can see something of his power. But we would be harder pressed just to look at nature and see something of God's love, especially in the fallen world that we live in. We certainly would be even harder pressed to find something of God's redemptive plan in nature. So nature tells us so much about God. It tells us that God exists and tells us some things about him. But natural revelation is limited. So God's self-disclosure to man did not end with natural revelation, but it moves to what theologians call special revelation. And there are two categories of special revelation. And the first is the scriptures. The scriptures reveal all that there is that we need to know to have a right relationship with God. And God was very gracious in, in doing so. Back in the early part of the revolutionary days in the United States and in, in Europe, there was a philosophy called deism. And that meant that God was there and that he existed, but that he was silent. And that he didn't give us any information about himself. So we could see something of him in his creation, but we didn't see everything that we needed to know about him. Certain people were comfortable with that, and they excluded the miraculous from all of their thoughts. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not a deistic God. He's a theistic God, which means that he's there. But to quote Francis Schaeffer, he's not silent. He is there and he's not silent. He has revealed himself to us. And the scriptures are one of the ways in special revelation that he's revealed himself to us. The scriptures tell us everything that, is, that there is that we need to know about God. In my view, it doesn't tell us everything that there is to know about God. Because God is infinite. And there is no infinite Book. I don't even think in heaven we'll know everything that there is to know about God because in order to know everything that there was to know with a one-to-one -one correspondence about an infinite being, you'd have to be infinite yourself. But it tells us everything we need to know about God. That's why it's critical for a believer's very existence that we spend time in the Word every day. Just like we breathe oxygen, we should breathe the Word of God. Why would we want to do that? Because in doing so, we would come to know Him better and to love Him more. Now, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of Christians, I know a lot of Christians even in this room that have been Christians for so long and have been in the Word for so long. It could be measured in decades, not years. That we might, although we would never verbalize it, we might in the back of our minds begin to have this thought, and it's a bad thought, I already know everything I need to know about God. That's funny because the Apostle Paul, right before he died, writes Timothy to bring him the parchments. It seems as though the Apostle Paul was soaking up the Word of God until the very last day that he breathed air on this earth. So if the Apostle Paul needed to know more all the time, then we certainly do too. Now it doesn't stop there. We've studied that so many times. We need to know the Word of God, but we need to love Him more as a result and then exercise that love among one another. 
So it's not just knowing the Scriptures, but it's doing the Scriptures. But the Scriptures are the second aspect of special revelation. And of course, I mean the first, the second of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus came when He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He was the exact representation of the Father. He was the icon of the Father, which means that He and the Father were one. So if you saw Jesus, you saw the Father. No one's seen God the Father at any time. He's pure spirit. But we've seen the Father by seeing Jesus. Now, we weren't there when he walked the earth, but the Gospels record him. For a long time, it seemed as though those in, the, in our camp, let's call it that, Bible church movement, we spent all our time in two books of the New Testament. You know what they were? They weren't Matthew and Mark or, or Luke and John. The two books that we spent most of our time in were Ephesians and Romans. You can go to any Bible church in the country, and at one time or another, they're doing a study in Ephesians and Romans, and that's great. But I think that for years, the Gospels were neglected in real strong Bible-teaching churches. We need to get back to that. That's why one of the first things I did in ministry was go through the Gospels. I thought it was so critical for us to see Jesus as He's revealed in the Gospels, and to love Him more, and to see something of God as we see something of Jesus. So we have these three aspects. We have natural revelation, and then we have two aspects of special revelation, the scriptures and Jesus himself. So what are we going to do with God's self-disclosure? Well, it seems to me there are only a couple of options as to what we might do when, when we come face-to-face -face with God's self-disclosure. When we sit on a mountain like I did several years back, it's almost 20 years ago now, I went up to Casper, Wyoming, a place that I grew up and I drove up to the back part of the mountain to a place called Muddy Mountain. Muddy Mountain's not muddy, but that's just what, what they call it for some reason. There's nobody there. Nobody there. And I sat there for quite a long time on the side of this precipice and just watched and listened. There was not another human sound out there. There was just the sound of the wind blowing through the trees. And I watched the eagles as they circled. And I looked at the mountain and, and the, the sun as it was shining across the top of Castro Mountain. And you can't see something like that without coming away with the, the conclusion, if you're a reasonable person, that God exists. So what am I going to do with that? We delve into the Word of God and we see a, an incredible, majestic, wonderful, gracious, merciful Savior. And that's revealed to us. But what are we going to do with it? I really think there's only two things we can do. We can rebel against the revelation that we've been given and we can reject His right to rule as the creator of everything. That's the first option. We can place ourselves at the center of our universe and we can shake our fist at him for having the audacity to try to tell me what to do. Who are you to tell me what to do? Now that's the first option that we would have as people who have been exposed to God's self-disclosure. Or, I have a better option for you, we can humbly submit to the Creator who has revealed Himself by grace through faith. We can then devote the remainder of our existence to serving Him and to worshiping Him and to praising Him for everything that He's done for us. It seems to me those are really the only two options. We can rebel against Him or we can submit to Him and praise Him and worship Him. As to that second option I mentioned, all Christians have submitted humbly to God, and they have exercised faith, but not necessarily all have devoted themselves exclusively to God, fully to their Creator. 
You see, unbelievers aren't the only ones who tend to rebel against God. We do from time to time, too. Every time we sin, we're rebelling against God. That's why we need to be quick to confess that sin, to acknowledge it before God, and to repent of it and move back into the place of praise and worship of God. Might I add, unashamed praise and worship of God. He's not ashamed of us, but sometimes we act like we're ashamed of Him. And I'm not talking about wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Sometimes people do that honestly, and sometimes people do it in silliness. I remember in the Greek courses I took at the University of Houston, I was one of the only Christians in the class. The professor, Norpozzi, was one of the best Greek professors I ever had, Oxford trained. There was one other guy in the class who, who was a Christian. The rest were all classics majors who were anything but Christians. But I noticed the other guy came to the class with his Christian T-shirt on all the time. And that's what, about the only thing he brought. He didn't bring his homework because he never did it. And in that kind of class, you're, it's, a, it's a dialogue kind of class. It was most embarrassing. I was thinking, at least don't wear the T-shirt if you're going to come in and be that sloppy. Everybody in the class was, was thinking, well, this is Christian scholarship. No, it's not. It was his scholarship, but he gave everybody a black eye. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, not being ashamed to tell people you're a Christian. I'm saying we ought to wear our Christianity on our sleeve. There's nobody that should spend 15 or 20 minutes with us and not recognize there's something different about us. Even if we never use the word Christ, there's still something different that they want, so then the word Christ can come up. I think we have to evangelize with our lives before we evangelize with our lips. I'm not saying lifestyle evangelism is where it ends. We need to do both. The appropriate response to the revelation of God that we've been given is worship. For all of us. And by definition, worship is focused upon the one who is being worshipped. It's not focused upon the worshiper. Worship should be God-centered. Not man-centered. Admittedly, that goes against the grain of the me-centered culture that we live in today. I admit that. I felt the need for some time now to address a couple of things. And given the context of our passage today, this seems like as an appropriate time as any to do it. I believe that there are a few questions that we need to ask ourselves. And I'm saying ask ourselves individually and then ask ourselves as a church. And the first is, how serious are we really about worship? Individually and corporately, how serious are we really? The second question I think that we all need to ask ourselves, me included, is there a fire? in our bellies for Jesus Christ or are we simply going through the motions just biding our time until he takes us home is there a fire in our belly for Jesus Christ there's a fire in his belly for you and for me but is there a fire in our belly for him and third are we worshiping individually each day with passion or while we would never verbalize it, have prayer, Bible study, and Christian service just become a part of our routine that we do daily. Something to be endured so that we can get through it and then get on to that which we would really like to do 
with the rest of our days. We've said it before, I hope you know that our corporate worship on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Sunday night will be no better than the sum total of the individual worship that we have during the week. On Sunday morning, you have a group of Christians that come together as people who love God, who presumably have been worshiping God all week. And I mean by worshiping through prayer and Bible study, fellowship with one another, Christian service. You see, if we're not worshiping individually all week, we can come together on Sunday morning and we can try to jazz it up or we can try to do whatever it is that churches do to try to get us all motivated. But see, if we've been worshiping all week long, we won't need that external motivation. We can't wait to get together with other people who believe the same thing that we believe and who serve the same Lord that we serve and praise Him as a group. One of the things that I always regretted about that time I told you up on Muddy Mountain was that I was all by myself up there. I would have loved to have shared that experience with somebody. Now, I've shared it with you, and that actually makes me feel good to be able to tell you about those days. But I really would have loved for Cindy or one of the kids that, to have been sitting there right next to me so we could have had a shared experience of God's self-disclosure to man through his creation. Aren't you that way sometimes, too? You do something. You might find yourself by yourself, and it's such an incredible experience. You pick up the cell phone, and you try to call somebody I want to tell you about what's happening to me right now. The first, the first two or three people you get, it goes right straight to voicemail. Doesn't it? You can never get somebody exactly when you need them. But you want to share it. And see, that's what a Sunday morning worship service is. We all love the same person, don't we? We've all been saved by the same person, haven't we? So when we gather together, we shouldn't have to have enthusiasm ginned up by some external source. We all love the same master, and we come and we gather ourselves together to praise that same master corporately. Now, maybe you've been a Christian for so long it doesn't, it doesn't work that way for you anymore. And I've got to look you right in the eye and tell you, that's a problem. That's a problem. If you've lost the fire in your belly for Jesus Christ, it's not Jesus' fault. And it's not your church's fault. And it's not the music leader's fault. And heaven forbid, it's not the pastor's fault. It couldn't be the pastor's fault, could it? <laughs> it's our own fault. When we lose that fire in our belly, we have forgotten who he is. We've forgotten his self-disclosure. I know those are penetrating questions. We all have to answer them, all of us. I do, you do as well. We all have to answer those questions. Here's another one. Did we spend more time this past week praising God or maligning and criticizing others, including other Christians? Now, that's a penetrating question. I was listening to a chapel message that Chuck Swindoll did up at Dallas Seminary. And Chuck said something very interesting. He said, listen, I don't go to the Internet anymore because I'm tired of seeing what people say about me. It's, I, I know me, and I, and I know that's not me, so I went to the Internet yesterday, and I want to see exactly what's being said about Chuck. You know something's been said about Chuck? You know a person he really admires? That Catholic sympathizer, C.S. Lewis. He admires, and that's the words, that was the words in the article. He admires John Stott. He was friends with James Dobson. As if all those things are negatives. I don't know where people come up with the time to write such garbage as this. And then Billy Graham, who's probably the, one of the most criticized people in Christianity. 
you'd think that he'd never done a thing for God in his life if you read some of the things on the Internet. Because so many Christians spend so much of their time criticizing Swindoll and Billy Graham that they have no time left to praise God. We would all do well just to praise God first. And if there's any time left over in your day, then go to criticize them. People are out there doing God's work. But guess what? If you spend your time praising God, you won't have much time left to criticize Chuck Swindoll or Billy Graham or fill in the blank. In fact, James tells us that we can't do both at the same time. Speaking of the tongue, James writes in chapter 3, With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. You can't do both at the same time. So if, if you only have a limited amount of time in the day, doesn't it make sense to praise God with our lips? rather than to be openly critical. We can only answer these questions for ourselves. And I know some people, particularly people that write these web articles, honestly believe that they're led by the Holy Spirit to write those articles and to malign other Christians or other ministries, and that's possible. And if you're led by the Spirit, if you're convinced that you're led by the Spirit to do something like that, then I say go for it. Jump on out there and go for it, but just make sure you're led by the Holy Spirit. You're never going to face God's discipline by faithfully following the Spirit's ministry in your life. But if you're not following the Spirit's ministry, well, fill in your own blank. For the rest of us who don't have the time to both praise God and to be hypercritical, we realize that if we spend most of our time maligning and criticizing others in the power of the flesh, God-honoring private worship is strangled from our lives. And by extension, our corporate worship will never be what it's supposed to be. The bottom line is this. All of us need to examine ourselves and see just where we are individually and then corporately when it comes to worship of the Almighty. And that's not just on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about every time we gather together in worship, whether it be here at Pine Valley Bible Church or whether it's at a, a Bible study, BSF, or the men's prayer breakfast or whatever it may be, we need to examine ourselves and say, am I going just because it's Saturday morning, the first Saturday morning of the month, or am I going because I'm jazzed and I have a fire in my belly for the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to make my request known unto God? That's what we have to ask ourselves. And that's where the Corinthians are. As Paul begins the second half of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul issues the challenge in the first part of 1 Corinthians to pursue love. To pursue love with the same intensity that a hunter pursues its prey or like a lion striding along the African plain going after dinner in the form of an African antelope. That's what Paul wants us to do with respect to love. And in these chapters, chapters 12 through 14, where Paul mentions some of these gifts of the Holy Spirit that are so controversial today, so often we're in such a hurry to get to what he's saying about those particular gifts that we miss the whole idea, the big idea, 
is that the Corinthians had missed the idea of love. And they were functioning in pride and selfishness, which had led to disunity. And the answer to disunity that's a result of pride and selfishness is not more selfishness. It's love. So that's why when chapter 14 begins, he says, pursue love. And that's the operative phrase that governs the rest of the chapter. Everything else we need to understand in view of those words. Pursue love. One pursues love in corporate worship as in all areas of life, by doing that which is beneficial to someone else. Love is an emotion that wills the highest and the best for another person. In Corinth, we've studied in the past few lessons that there were some in the worship service that were praying in some sort of unintelligible, maybe babbling language, so as to be understood by no one, not even themselves. Paul's argument was that that's not edifying to others. And therefore, at the very least, at the very least, should not be central in Christian worship. On the other hand, those exercising the gift of prophecy were actually communicating divine truth, which could be understood and which could then result in spiritual growth. The conclusion that Paul reaches is elementary, my dear Watson, go with prophecy. If no one's being edified by this other activity, whether it's legitimate or not, if no one's being edified, and someone's being edified, the whole church is being edified by prophecy, then go with prophecy. That's the message that he gave us in the first part of this chapter, and he will as time goes on as well. If there's something that should be central to worship, he's telling the Corinthians... It should be something that has the potential to edify everybody. Then in verse 20 of chapter 14, he issues another challenge. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. The Corinthian context is Christian worship. And the specific issue is mature Christian worship, not childish Christian worship. The best that can be said for giving priority to speaking in tongues in worship, either the legitimate use that we've talked about or what I believe is an illegitimate use in the way that they were speaking in this unintelligible language, is that it's not expressing maturity in worship. That's the best that we can say about what they were doing. That's what Paul's telling them. It's not mature worship the way you're doing it. In fact, it's childish worship. And to validate that thinking, he cites a passage from Isaiah 28, the passage that Dan read this morning, to remind them of the original prediction of the phenomenon of tongues. We'll be there for just a few minutes, so I'd invite you to turn back over to Isaiah chapter 28, where our scripture reading was, because we need to see the original context of what was going on in Isaiah 28 before we're going to appreciate why Paul quotes this particular verse in this passage. Why bring this verse up? Well, let's go back to Isaiah 28 and see what he's doing. By way of a little background, Isaiah's ministry was largely to warn both the northern kingdom and then subsequently the southern kingdom that they were about to be the recipients of coming judgment. In fact, that's what most of the prophets did. They were warning that judgment was on the way. 
And the failure of the Jews, as we see it in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well, was not so much a failure that they had not spent enough money on their military. The primary failure wasn't so much a failing military, but a failing spiritual life. And they had failed big time. They were God's people. They had the responsibility to tell the nations about God, but they weren't doing it. And because of that miserable failure, they were about to be severely punished. Now, they won't be wiped out completely. There is a future for Israel, but they were about to be severely punished. And the root problem, as we read not just through Isaiah, but also Jeremiah and the other prophets, was that those who had been given the responsibility to proclaim God's truth to the people had failed miserably in that responsibility. The priests were supposed to lead the people in Yahweh honoring worship. But they weren't doing it. And so the prophets, especially you get into Jeremiah, lay the blame on Israel's coming judgment first and foremost right at the feet of the priests. Right at the feet of the people who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel because they had failed miserably. If you're considering pastoral ministry, you might keep this in mind. Your responsibility is to faithfully fulfill the duties that God gave you regardless of the response of the people. You have no right to reject the responsibilities of spiritual leadership just because some of the sheep rebel against you or against God while they're under your leadership. Because at the end of the day, their rebellion is between them and God. So you press ahead. The Jewish priests had lost sight of their responsibilities. It's understandable, but not excusable. If we transport ourselves back in time to Isaiah's day and place ourselves in the, the position of a priest, it might sound something like this. It all started off pretty good. I was enthusiastic, I worked hard, I taught the people, I led in the sacrificial system in the temple, but one day I looked behind and nobody's following. So then public enemy number one when it comes to ministry sets in. You know what public enemy number one in ministry is? And you have ministries too, every one of you does, so listen carefully, it's discouragement. That's public enemy number one in ministry. And when that moment of discouragement comes, you have one of two choices to make. You can keep your focus upon your Creator and persevere, or you can get your focus upon the rebelling flock and quit. I'm sad to say, in effect, the priests chose the latter. They joined in the rebellion of the people. If you can't beat them, join them, or so it says. Well, that's great leadership, guys. Good job, priests. Great courage. That's why Jeremiah takes them apart. In Isaiah chapter 28, read along with me. Isaiah says, Woe to the proud, or woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent, as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand. See, they had turned to alcohol. And we're going to find out later in this reading this morning that the people who are the direct reference here 
or the leaders of Israel. The leaders of Israel had turned to alcohol to numb their pain. This is not unique to Isaiah. Amos mentions it in Isaiah in Amos chapter 4 verse 1 and in Amos chapter 6 as well. So this was quite widespread. Verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is the head, at the head of the fertile valley will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer. In other words, easy, easily picked off by a bystander. Which one sees, and as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of the people. A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. So he's warning about coming judgment. Now, Old Testament scholars believe that the first six verses are written primarily to the northern kingdom. That's beyond our scope for today, and we're almost to the conclusion of our time together, so I won't go into that detail. These next few verses were probably directed more specifically to Judah. Then in verse 7, this is the one that really shocks us. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when receiving judgments. They're ministering to the people in a state of inebriation. And this happens more than we would like to admit. I know of two cases in Christianity. I will, I will not mention their names to you. That's not the point. I know of one man who was so hurt in ministry that he turned to alcohol and became consumed with it. In fact, one Sunday night after the church, Sunday evening church service was finished, just a few moments after the service was finished, he was pulled over in his car leaving the church parking lot and was arrested for driving while intoxicated. Now you do the math on that, it means that most likely he was intoxicated when he did the service that night. That's, that's the way he covered up the pain. And I know he was going through pain. But instead of turning to the Lord, he turned to alcohol to numb it. I know another evangelist, incredible guy, one of the most powerful gifts of evangelism I have ever seen in operation. Had a pain in his back, got hooked, just much like the radio commentator Rush Limbaugh did on certain pain medications. And like Rush said, if you read his article that he wrote after that, I was hooked after the first pill. And he said, because it took away the pain that he felt in his life. And that particular evangelist ended up saying the same thing. Now, now as far as I know, both of them have recovered from these issues. And, I'm, and I praise God for it. But that's what the priest in Israel did, I'm sure. Because if you're in ministry, you want people to follow. You want people to get it. And when they don't, it's a painful thing, but you've either got to turn back to God or turn to something else. The priest in Israel turns to something else. Then in verse 8, I love the way Isaiah does this. Isaiah pulls no punches. He presents material in a very graphic way that gets our attention. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. The whole nation's drunk. That's how they're handling the pain. And then in verse 9, to whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, a little here, a little there. 
So then in verse 11, we come to the verse that Paul quotes. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. To summarize this, when, when the people refused to follow the priests, the priests followed the people. They dealt with emotional pain by turning to alcohol. They had a choice. But they chose, instead of sticking with God and pressing on, to turn to alcohol. And that's not the way it works. The scriptures say, For thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. When you get to verses 9 and 10, because the priest failed in their responsibility, by the time that Isaiah comes along, his message seems meaningless. It's so simple. It's a simple message, so they were ridiculing it. Then when we get to verse 11, it's as if God is saying, or Isaiah is saying for God, okay, you insist on rejecting the message that God gave that was mediated through me and the other prophets. The next message is then going to come to you through foreigners. And it's not going to be a verbal message as much as it's going to be a physical one. They're not going to understand a word that's spoken to them by the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians. But they'll observe very clearly, it'll be a clear message that God is displeased with them and that they messed up big time. They had refused to listen to the simple message of the prophet and now they're going to listen to the message of God that was given to him through the foreign invaders. They're going to get the point one way or another. It's, it's the easy way or the hard way. They chose the hard way. Now those are the words in verse 11 that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians chapter 21. He says, in the law it is written, and the law is a term that's sometimes used in New Testament for the entirety of Hebrew Bible. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Often with prophecy, there's a near fulfillment and a distant fulfillment, or some people call it an ultimate fulfillment. The near fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy was the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians and later the destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. But the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, the distant fulfillment, came in the form of God judging Jewish rebellion in the first century by the use of the Romans. Paul is here expanding, not changing, but expanding the meaning of Isaiah's original prophecy to include the concept of speaking in tongues as a warning to unbelieving Jews that would destruction was on its way again. That's why he refers back to this passage. And in fact, we know that it did indeed happen historically in the Roman siege of Jerusalem. It lasted from March to September, A.D. 70. And Josephus, the historian, wrote that over 1.1 million Jews died in those months. 1.1 million Jews died. Over 95,000 were taken captive. Total devastation. By introducing Isaiah 28 into the discussion, Paul is indicating that speaking in tongues was not primarily assigned to the Gentiles, but to Jews who were in rebellion against God. That rebellion being demonstrated by their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Tongues were intended as a sign to unbelieving Israel, signifying that God had begun a new work that included the Gentiles. 
the Lord would now speak to the nations in all languages. The barriers were down. And so the gift of tongues symbolized God's discipline on disobedient Israel, but also God's blessing on the entire world. In verse 22, So then tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign, not to believers, but for those who believe. He follows up here and confirms that tongues in the first century was assigned primarily to unbelievers, Jewish unbelievers. Jews who knew their Hebrew Bible would recognize this phenomenon as reflecting that which God used in Israel's ancient past as a sign of discipline on a disobedient, rebellious nation. The sign was a motivation for Israel as a nation to repent of their rebellion, specifically in the first century, changing their minds about Jesus. In contrast, the prophecy was a gift that was directed toward believers for the edification of everybody. And so to wrap this up, if we're to be mature in our thinking, particularly with respect to Christian worship, as what was brought out in verse 20, we must be wise enough to recognize that which edifies the entirety of the body of Christ and that which reflects a pursuit of love. That's what we must recognize in the church. That's what we must seek to accomplish in the church. If you've been following along with us, you know that the Corinthian situation was complicated. What was being practiced in the church was not the gift of tongues as it was practiced on the day of Pentecost. It was praying in an unintelligible way with the mind disengaged. Perhaps it was imported from Greek pagan mystery religions. We don't know for sure. But Paul's already demonstrated the folly of such activity in verse 15 of the chapter that we studied two weeks ago. But what about the legitimate use of the gift of tongues? If he's negated the illegitimate use, what about the legitimate? How did it fit into the bigger picture? Well, we know that tongues were a revelatory gift, a sign that was primarily intended to get the Jewish unbelievers' attention those Jews were in rebellion against God. And he was trying to tell the Jews that just like in Isaiah's day, the clock is ticking. And the time to turn to God through Jesus Christ is now. As soon as they heard people speaking in tongues, their minds should have gone back to Isaiah 28. Don't wait, he's telling them. The goal in worship is maturity, not childishness. All he's saying is that when you participate in these other things, that's childish. It's not mature. In order to worship in a mature way, in a God-honoring way, the Corinthians needed to recognize what should be prioritized and what should be avoided in their services. Praying with verbiage, not understood by the ones praying or the ones listening, should be avoided because no one was edified. Speaking in tongues was a legitimate exercise at this point in history of the church, and should not be forbidden. I mean, speaking in legitimate tongues, a known foreign language, was legitimate at this time, at the time that Paul writes, and shouldn't have been forbidden. But they must understand its purpose. Then on the other hand, exercising the gift of prophecy, communing God's truth to God's people, and should have been given priority. Today, neither the gift of tongues nor the gift of prophecy are still valid. So where does that leave us with respect to our understanding and application of the message of this passage? Well, this is where it leaves us. We are all to take worship 
seriously. We should respond to God's self-disclosure with passionate praise. We should be careful to worship in such a way as to glorify God and build up our brothers and sisters in Christ in the process. We must pursue love.